You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Uh, greetings, everyone, and welcome into our time here together, turning for guidance to the Christian mystic St. John of the Cross. And uh, we're in the midst of um, exploring his teachings of our journey to perfect union with God in a passage through a dark night. And we left off last time uh, introducing the Ascent of Mount Carmel on how this what attitudes we can foster to cooperate with this dark night that brings us to this deep union with God. And we're in this session, we're going to be reflecting on chapter 13 of the Ascent of Mount Carmel, book one. And in this session, I've asked Kirsten to join me. And uh, so as I go through the chapter, I'll pause at each section so that she can ask any questions that comes to her as kind of representative of the kind of questions that might come to you. And I'm doing this because um, uh, this chapter is, is kind of very poetic and kind of intuitively dense <clears throat> and, uh, and therefore it can be discouraging. To, like, how do I get at this? How do I get to this? But once we get inside what he's saying, it's the kind of thing you can return to over and over again as a kind of a grounding place. So that's the nature of this session. And, and uh, this, Kristen and I will hopefully be helping you to um, gain access to the graces that are in this chapter. So I'll begin with chapter 13, article one, chapter 13. He says, some consuls are in order that the individual may both know the way of entering the night and be able to do so. And uh, he goes on to say that this night, which is this purifying process in which we're brought into the light of God, has an active aspect and a passive aspect. The passive aspect is what makes it essentially mystical and that it comes from God. And we started to look at that when we started with the three signs of entering into the dark night in meditation, of the loss of consolation, the loss of clarity, and to see that God's weaning us off our capacity to experience finite ways of experiencing God, to prepare us to experience an infinite way of experiencing the infinite presence of God. In this chapter, he's looking at the active aspects to, on how we cooperate with that. How do we cooperate with that? Article three, he says, is a place to begin. He said, first, to have an habitual desire to imitate Christ in all your deeds by bringing your life into conformity with his. You must then study his life in order to know how to imitate him and to behave in all events as he would. So with, this is the kind of talk that we're used to, I think, as a follower of Christ. We prayerfully read the Gospels, so we want to live as Christ lived. How would Christ 
any situation, how would Christ understand the situation? What would Christ's attitude be towards it? How would Christ act in the situation? And so I'm called to be like Christ. I'm called to be loving and compassionate and patient and humble and so on. And we're used to that. Next he says, and this is the surprising thing, and here's where we'll be turning to Christian. <laughs> we'll be dialoguing together. That's, so, so far that makes sense. Then he says this, which is kind of surprising. Second, in order to be successful in this imitation, renounce and remain empty of any sensory satisfaction that is not purely for the honor and glory of God. Do this out of love for Jesus Christ. In his life, he had no other gratification nor desired any other than the fulfillment of his Father's will, which he called his meat and food. For example, if you are offered the satisfaction of hearing things that have no relation to the service and glory of God, do not desire this pleasure or the hearing of these things. When you have an opportunity for the gratification of looking upon objects that will not help you come closer to God, do not desire this gratification or sight, and so on. So this is kind of a surprising turn on how to kind of practically apply this to my life. And um, so, Kirsten, before I venture into this, any initial impression about the direction he's heading in here? Or, mm -hmm. uh, well, I do appreciate some practical guidance, even if it is a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, yes. I find it challenging to live in balance of knowing that grace comes from God, but that there is a role for me to be open and cooperative yeah. and, to, and to hold the right tension around that. Exactly, yes. And here, here are some things too I thought of to kind of help us, where I think we all experience the dark night of John of the Cross's sense that we might not as yet experience it in the fullness of the mystical sense with God, but the mystery of the dark night is very much a part of our life. I think I'm going to give some examples. Let's say that you're going through a struggle with something, and it really is very difficult, and it's ongoing, and it's, it's taking its toll on you. But in the midst of the hardship, you get a glimpse or a sense of being mysteriously sustained by God in the midst of the struggle. So as you go through the struggle, and let's say you come out the other end, it has a kind of a resolution, it resolves itself. You begin to realize a certain longing to abide in that depth of God's presence that was given to you in the midst of the struggle. Another example would be that um, uh, there's someone you love very much who's struggling with something, maybe caring for a dying parent or, I mean, whatever, struggle. It could be anyone you love very much is really having a hard time of a situation of an uncertain outcome. And out of your love for them, it burdens you, see. And you're with them, you're working it out. But then in the midst of it all, you get a sense of how mysteriously God is present in how precious this loved one is to you. And precious in a way that's not threatened or diminished by the outcome of the struggle. They might end up dying, but their death does not diminish the presence of God that was revealed to you in the struggle and also revealed to you in their death. And a third example would be things are going really well. 
for you. You're lock on wood. You're so lucky in terms of security and relationships, and I mean all the good things of life. But in the midst of it all, you realize that something's missing. Something's missing. That somehow you're longing for something more, not more of this, meaning not more of what can be gained or lost, but somehow sensing wanting that which is infinitely more than the sum total of all that can be gained or lost, like a certain longing for a kind of a boundaryless fulfillment see, that alone can put to rest the restless longings of your heart. So it's a very subtle thing here. He's talking about a certain kind of inner fidelity to a certain sensitivity of our heart in the midst of things. And he's trying to guide us into be, uh, how to be more aware of that and more faithful to that. Does that make sense intuitively? Or? Yeah, what's coming to mind for me in my own experience is just that those sense of moments or times in life where you feel that nothing but, but God's presence can help or, or nothing yeah, yeah. but feeling God's presence in the midst of the situation could help. And there's, in my experience of those times, there's a certain level of desperation in the not knowing, like the, the desperation comes from not being clear, not knowing how to find God's presence in the midst yes. of the situation. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. In other words, I, I think another, another thing he's trying to help us see here is that, see, what happens when um, our finite ego with uh, the layered interiority and poverty of ourself and ego consciousness, the human experience. What happens when that's our base of operations? That's the level, that has the final say in who we are and who we're called to be. And because the ego is, is a sense of self that's conditioned by conditioned states, there's a certain precariousness in all of it. And so we feel a certain longing to find our way to a depth of presence that transcends the precariousness. Because even if it's going very beautifully, we know we could lose it at any moment. You know, you could lose the beloved, the beloved could die, the child could, you don't know what's going to, have no control over much of anything, really. And even in the precariousness, you, you sense this, like John of the Cross, to have no light to guide you except the one that burns in your heart. There's like a burning of a light your finite eyes can't see, but you sense it's sustaining you. So then you say to yourself, well, how could I be more habitually and consciously grounded in that depth, which is so elusive to me in my ego consciousness. And he's trying to help us find our way to that. Yes, that's beautiful. Yeah, it is. The experience that comes to mind for me is, uh, I've talked before on the podcast about uh, not being able to have children naturally. And as you're talking, I, I wasn't actually looking in the beginning for something more stable and deeper than the the, um, the questions I was wrestling with about fertility and those kinds of things. Um, but that's where I, I eventually landed. So initially mm -hmm. the questions were much more, um, God, give me an answer. Should I do this or should I do that? You know, I was really yeah. reaching out to God for certainty um, with with decisions of the ego, I guess. Yes. and But in the end, I didn't get any clear answers to those kinds of questions, mm -hmm. but I did drop into an experience of comfort and consolation that everything was okay 
whether I had answers or not. Yes. And, and another thing on that, and we'll move on to the next slide, but another issue that as an example. Let's say there's someone for whom the maternal instinct is very strong to have a child. It's a very deep thing for some more than others. Some people it's very deep. And so for someone for whom that's very strong and they can't conceive, the loss goes deep. But if they stay with it, if they stay with it, they begin to see maternal energies emerging in their life. So out of the very inability to conceive a child physically, it all heightens their maternal fulfillment in kind of a mothering or nurturing presence in the life of someone or to, to a community or, or so on. So we'll keep it with, the, with Teresa of Avila. Or later we look at Julianne of Norwich and the other women in six. In a way, she's mothering us. You know, she's mothering us. It's a very deep maternal intuition. And she was a woman who had no child, physically. She had no child, but has many children. And so it's interesting how, and so John the Cross is trying to help us find our way to those kinds of things. Yeah. And, um, so in these examples that he gives then about if there's something, uh, the pleasure through hearing, but if it doesn't add to the glory of God, don't desire the pleasure or uh, tasting, whatever it is. Here's what I think, it, how I would interpret it. How do we interpret this? I would say, let's say we're seeing something beautiful, like a mountain scene or the, a storm or flowers, something very beautiful. And we would say, you know, um, you know, God created that. God created the beauty of that. God created my capacity to see the beauty of that. It is of God. And if it helps me then to be grateful for the divinity of life, for the holiness of life. But to know that the finite pleasure of that beauty is something I could have. I, I realize insofar as I could have it, that gratification being finite is infinitely less than my deep longing for an infinite union with the infinite that alone can gratify me. So I hold my heart in abeyance, that as I don't move in on it to have closure by trying to have the beauty or the experience of the beauty, I let it wash over me. But I remind myself it's an echo of, it, the, of the infinite beauty of God. And I think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's talking about the appreciation of the, of the pleasures of life through the senses, seeing the goodness of God through the body, through those pleasures, but knowing that insofar those pleasures are something we can try to have or hold on to, then that's infinitely less than the infinite pleasure that God has in mind for us, which is God. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of subtlety, I think, in this. And this is the sense of active cooperation with God's right. presence in the world. And so then you, you're, you're trying to drop into the graced event of seeing the mountain and knowing that's that right. it's yes. God's presence. And that's what makes it active, see, because I have to choose to do that because it's subtle. And if I just skim over the surface of things, like the next TV show, the next thing, the next thing, I, I don't, I miss the subtlety, and it leaves my interior heart, un, its longings are unconsummated. So I have to choose to recalibrate my heart to this, to this kind of fidelity 
to this very delicate interior thing to keep the aperture, to keep the aperture of my heart open to the more. See, and he's trying to invite us to have that kind of sensitivity. I think is the path. Yeah. Next, <clears throat> Article Five. Many blessings flow from the harmony and tranquility of the four natural passions, joy, hope, fear, and sorrow. And um, I think it means this about the passions, is to know that there is the joy of joyful things, but there is the joy that's fulfilled in learning to find our way into the joy of God. And therefore, I appreciate the joy of joyful things, but I know those joys are echoes of my heart's desire to enter into and to participate in the joy of God, which is God's destiny for me, is God's own joy. And I also know that my hope is that when death comes and I pass through the veil of death, I will not be annihilated but consummated, and I will be eternally in the joy of God is my destiny. And I also hope that with God's help, I'll recognize God's joy reverberating in the joys of my life and in the sorrows of my life. Kind of a quiet joy. Likewise, my fear is that I'll, I'll, I'll miss this. That's my fear. See, that I'm not careful. That that which is essential never imposes itself. That which is unessential is constantly imposing itself. But by a higher order imperative of the awakened heart, I have to keep my heart open for what I know to be essential, which is this infinite union with the infinite presence of God. And so my fear is, is half-heartedness. My fear is I'd get seduced by the intensity of the day by day and lose my way. And my sorrow, my sorrow then would be that I would be given over to that half-hearted life. See? I also could say we can understand the sorrows of the world. The sorrows of, is that collective disconnect from this. See? And so the four passions then, like the passion of your heart, is this kind of another set of images to help us understand the sensitivity that he's trying to, not just in meditation and prayer, but habitually throughout the day, like an underlying set of sensitivities for these passions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jim, would you say that the way he's describing the passions, the way you just described them, is dropping down to the depth of the passion? Because there's a, especially around the word hope and fear, I think at a different level of consciousness, I mean, there's a lot to be afraid of, um, coronavirus, yes. death, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I have hopes for my family and hopes for my life. Yeah. Yes, exactly. See, as human beings, take the virus, for example. Um, you see, not just within ourselves, our family and our loved ones, just collectively as a society, as a human family, um, there's so much fear because something's so threatening and overwhelming and it, it blindsided us, we didn't see it coming. And it is fearful. So we're not talking about not being afraid when fearful things happen. Because Jesus was afraid. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat blood, meaning he, he saw crucifixions. He saw they were brutal executions. He knew 
you knew, see, let this, if possible, let this cup pass from me. See, not but as I will, but as you will. And um, so, but it's not being, uh, it's not being afraid of being afraid. See? It's learning how not to be afraid of being afraid because we're a human being. But to know what we're trying to find is no matter how scary the scary thing is and how it turns out, we are being unexplainably sustained in the midst of the scary thing, regardless of its outcome, including even if it ends in death, I mean sustained in death because God's the infinity of death. You know, God, God is, uh, uh, God's the, the mystery of death is sister death, St. Francis says. And so it means that. So it means that we do our best, just the normal human response to nurture and be protective and remedy. But we're trying to find a peace that isn't dependent on the outcome of circumstance because it's the peace of God on which everything depends. And we're trying to find a groundedness in that to give us the courage to be present to all these things without them tipping us over. That's really helpful. And Jim, I don't know if it's my personality or, um, or not, but starting with fear and what you just said helps me tap into the hope, joy, and sorrow you described. So if I can not be afraid of my own fear, then my hope lies in death not making me afraid of my own fear, suffering not making me afraid afraid of my yes. own fear. My my hope lies lies in the peace of God being something that can help me support me and not being afraid of my own fear. Exactly. Mm. And with me too and I on my work with trauma people in therapy, myself and trauma. Uh we're starting at age three years old with severely so intense fear was very early on so basic to my life traumatizing fear but i was somehow sustained in the fear see? and so sustained in the fear has helped me not to be afraid of fear i respect it and i seek to be as safe as i can and help other people be safe as i can but i know precisely because it got so dark you can see the light that shines in the darkness but doesn't grasp it and so fear becomes like a teacher because there must be something greater than the fear where we wouldn't be here. The fear would have done us in and it didn't. So uh, it's, it's strange, you know, it's like that, I think. Next, Article 6, Guidelines for a Happy Life. <laughs> Endeavor to be inclined always, not to the easiest, but to the most difficult, not to the most delightful, but to the harshest not to the most gratifying, but to the less pleasant, not to what means rest for you, but hard work, not to the consoling, but the unconsoling, not to the most, but to the least, not to the highest and most precious, but to the lowest and most despised. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Follow sounds, that and you can't go wrong. Yeah. Sounds fabulous. <laughs> yeah, really. So what, what do we mean? What's he saying here? Here's, I'm going to insert the critical phrase, I think. You know what I mean? Endeavor to be inclined always not to what is easiest, to the great lie within yourself about yourself, but to what is most difficult to the great lie within yourself about yourself. And what is the great lie? That anything less than an infinite union with the infinite presence of God will be enough for me. Furthermore, it's also the great lie that that infinite presence of God is already infinitely giving itself to me, breath by breath, heartbeat by heartbeat. And I'm learning with God's help to recognize it and live by it. See? That's the key, I, th I think. Because as soon as we settle 
for what's less than that, pretending it's enough, see? Then we fall into the great lie that if anything finite, conditioned, and fleeting can consummate who I deep down am and I'm called to be. And he's trying to cultivate mm -hmm. that sensitivity in us. And Jim, so do you think, like just reading through these again, with that lens in mind, um, it's it's not rejecting, not trying to live inside a, a world where you're trying to make everything happy, pleasant, delightful, gratifying, restful, but to recognize that God's present in the entirety of the world. So not to reject the distasteful or the less pleasant or the hard work. Yes. Now, let, let's say uh, uh, someone who's, let's say, emotional immaturity could be functioning purely at the level, and this maybe helps understand the nature of addiction too, is to be gratified by what gratifies in an immediate sensory way. And so you end up going from gratification to gratification to gratification. But then you discover it's exhausting because the endless round of gratifications don't gratify. But when you love someone very deeply, or say the artist or the poet, or someone who serves the poor, their gratification is coming from a deeper place. So it isn't that there isn't the pleasurable and the pleasant, it is, you appreciate that. But you're learning to function at a qualitatively richer, deeper level that eventually opens out on God, who's present to us, you know, and when we live this Which way. Which is to, this. to be open and present to what exists in life, which is the dis delightful and the distasteful, which is wanting something and not wanting something. It's, it's to open ourselves up to the whole experience that God bodies forth into the world. Yes. We could put it another way, too. I put it as all things considered... What's the most loving thing I could do right now for my body, my mind, this person, this child, this community, the earth? And the most loving thing uh, might ask something of me. Sometimes it asks nothing less than everything, really, to be faithful to that. And I think it's that kind of integrity or kind of integrity is asking us to live mm, by. That's helpful. Know. Next part of that is... Uh, this Article 6 has two parts to it, the second part of Article 6. Endeavor to be inclined always, not to wanting something, but to wanting nothing. Do not go about looking for the best in temporal things, but for the worst. And desire to enter for Christ into complete nudity, emptiness, and poverty in everything in the world. <laughs> He's a bottom line kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> But Jim, he was talking to people who this was their vocation. Well, yeah, that, that is true. This is 16, yeah, these are... They've made vows. Yeah, these, of poverty, yeah. and Teresa's yeah. close friend, she was a cloistered nun, and he was yes. a Carmelite friar, and there was this asceticism, you know, to the life. So we're trying to translate, well, what's the universal principle that applies to all of us in trying to live a contemplative way of life in the midst of the world? So how can we get at the core of... Um, uh, how this is incarnate in our vocation. I, I put in the critical phrase this way. Endeavor always not to, not to wanting something as if, a, if, I could, if I could have that thing, I'd be happy. We're in the Merton Reflections. We were saying, Merton is saying, whenever I wanted something very, very much and I get it, it ends up being just one more thing that I wanted very much. 
me. Because the very fact it's something, it's finite, because it's finite, it won't be enough for me either. See? So not to wanting something as if they're having something would... Look, look at consumer, uh, the society today on consumerism. If you can just buy this and have this, you'll be happy. And it carries us, it'll carry it on the end of the stick, the next thing we're trying to have. But to wanting nothing, meaning to want no thing, as if I could have that thing, it would make me happy. Likewise, to know that grounded in this deeper place, knowing even when I lose that thing I wanted so much, the loss of it won't make me unhappy. And uh, so it's that attitude again. He's trying to get to this deep attitude. And, and, and I think, too, not for wanting the worst of temporal things. I think for us today that would be a rough, not the worst, you know, try to find the ugliest chair you can find in the store. <laughs> so, because you want to be holy. Uh, but it's saying that, I think it's saying not to be attached, to be grateful for what we have. And not to be at attached to external levels of, of things. We can appreciate that something's more beautiful than another. We can also see the poverty of all material things. And we can see how God's present in that very poverty. And just not being attached, not functioning at that level, but going deeper in appreciation of things. This section really reminds me of birth and death like the way we come into the world and the way we leave yeah, the yeah, world yeah. and like a consistency of um uh attitude yes with, with the birth and death of all things yeah it's very good i think that's really true i mean let's say birth and death are filled with lessons so for the baby being born it's not a walk in the park <laughs> seriously <laughs> seriously and the first thing they do is hold you by your heels and give you a whack and welcome you aboard. <laughs> and you're in, you're in for quite a ride. Yeah. And at the other end, it's no walk in the park either. Right. You know, it just is that the hospice is not a joy ride. And in between, bumpy ride. But there's something beautiful about it, something precious, you know, something one, something ultimately divine. Really, so I think it's really true because in daily life we could consider birth and hundreds of little births and deaths throughout the day, and if we cling to the birthing part to avoid the death, we could fall into confusion. If we get taken down by the death and not see the birth that's shining out of it, so how can we ride the waves of birth and death of gain and loss as a kind of a providential quality to our path? I think it's mm -hmm. really true. Yeah. And that those three, the, the nakedness, emptiness, and poverty That's seem it. to be a, yeah. a part of... Yeah, I'm naked, meaning, yeah, I'm poor, naked, meaning uh, I, I'm a poor person, I have nothing, I give you my heart. It was a hymn like that. And so it's, you're just in, it's like you're ravaged by the generosity of God, sustaining you in an empty-handed poverty. See, like that is kind of a deep kind of sense of things, I think, that... We try to live by. I will say all participants in this podcast are wearing clothes. Yes, prob probably. <laughs> prob yes. You know what? Realistically, not. I mean, some of them are. I mean, depends. Some of them at the physical level are not wearing clothes as they listen to this podcast. But and all of us are wearing our clothes to some degree, either the good sense where we need our clothes in the good sense, 
but also in the sense we need to outgrow, we need to lose our clothes. We're, mm. we're holding on to certain things because we've not yet at a point where we can let go mm. of imagining as long as I can be clothed in this appearance, as long as yes. I can be clothed in this thing. As long, and it's a lifelong process to be through love to have that kind of dissolve and all of it. Yeah, I think it's true. Yeah. Seven, you should embrace these practices earnestly and try to overcome your repugnance of your will towards them. Notice he admits this. In other words, the ego does not easily give up its claim to having the final say in who we are. See? Uh, if you sincerely put them into practice with order and discretion, it's like prudent courage. See, be, di be discreet. You're just a human being. There's no rush. You'll be dead in about three seconds anyway. Don't worry about it. There's no, you're not going to try to, how can I do this as quick as possible so I can get on to my next project? It, it's, it's an underlying deepening attitude of self-acceptance in the presence of God in, in the day by day, I think. It gives you a feeling, too, what it would be like to have St. John of the Cross as your spiritual director. You know, to sit with him, you get the feeling he'd be a very compassionate, insightful, present person to meet you where you are with this and help you move on to the next place. And it kind of shines through the way he talks and how he sees things. I think things. so too. Yeah. And in touch with the whole of life. And very like much. He's in, very yeah. sober to life. He's very. very. And when you read his poetry too, just how it's so sensual and eloquent and full. You know, like you'd be in the presence of a deeply alive person, very present. And when you sat with him, you'd get a sense that he could see in you you know, what you're not yet able to see. And uh, he could help invite you, to, he could draw it out so you'd be more aware of that and share it with other people. And that always comes through with me, with all these mystics, really, I think. These consuls, if truly carried out, are sufficient for entry into the night of the senses. One would hope so. <laughs> I mean, really, Jewess. <laughs> but but that we give abundant enough counsel. Here are some more you can try on. <laughs> so he's on a roll. You know what I mean? He's kind of he's yeah. into it. Okay. Yeah. First, <laughs> number nine. Here's another winning stance for a happy life. <laughs> First, try to act with contempt for yourself and desire that all others do likewise. <laughs> Second, endeavor to speak in contempt of yourself and desire that all others do so. Third, try to think lowly and contemptuously of yourself and desire that all others do the same. <laughs> this isn't sounding like the most loving thing at this point. No, no it really doesn't. <laughs> However, there's a lot of people in therapy that say, I already do that. You know, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get help not to do that. You know? <laughs> so let's put in the critical term. Okay, again, again. Try to act in contempt for the great lie within yourself about yourself and desire all that. That is anything less than an infinite union with the infinite love of God will ever be enough to put to rest the longings of your heart. And that's what he's really saying with each of those things. And um, so, when he says the of yourself, he's talking about the the ego self. Yeah, that's right. The uh, ego with self contempt to the to the ego. Y yes, the, the not, e not not. Go ahead. Mean, yeah. Not to be mean to yourself, but to um, be cautious and not believe what the ego is trying to tell you, that yeah. you need this or you need to do that to be accepted or you need to be a certain way. Yes, I'd put it this way too. 
See, I think it's an ego consciousness. We come upon within ourselves what transcends ourself. So we're going along in ego consciousness through our senses and thoughts and memories and feelings and emotions. And we come upon that which transcends us, that we're touched by the holiness of life or the presence as it gives us to life. And then in being touched by it, we're given the grace to abide in what's beyond our finite ego and beyond what the ego can attain. But the dignity of the ego is the ego with God's grace must freely cooperate in the demise of its illusion about having the final say in who we are. But in doing so in a way that, that's really say the dignity of the ego. But it's also the dignity as it does this to realize the God-given dignity of the ego itself like the holiness of my body, the holiness of my breath, the holiness of my thoughts, the holiness of my longings, the holiness of watering the houseplants and looking out the window and taking a walk. And, uh, you know, it comes full circle back to the divinity of my ordinariness, like Christ consciousness of myself. The ego has been liberated from this estrangement and so it can live in the divinity of its of itself and its nothingness without God, with a sense of gratitude or amazement or f inner freedom. I think it's like that. Yeah. So, Jonathan, the cross is speaking to the unliberated ego yes. at this point. I think he's saying this. It's a centaur kind of thing. He's he's speaking to us insofar as we've already been awakened to the more, or we wouldn't be reading this, or we wouldn't be listening to the podcast, unless we already sensed here intimations of something beautiful that we've tasted or desire and that bears witness that we're already emerging so there is that and then there's there is that that is realizing it and there's always that in me that doesn't realize it yet See? and so my job with god's grace is to endlessly circle back around and be there for the part that doesn't realize it yet and then i'm like that's like christ consciousness towards myself you know, and then I can do the same for other people. There's that in them that sees this, you know, the goodness or the light. And then with all of us, there's that in each of us that doesn't see it yet. And so we're all trying to help each other out and not push each other down. And uh, yeah, I think that's my sense of it. <clears throat> um, now in a conclusion, he's referring here to a drawing and in the collected works, I don't know if Corey can make this available to the students or not. I think it's on page uh, 66, 67 of the collected works. And on the left-hand side is, he wrote it by hand, that's in his handwriting. Then it's typed on the right-hand side of the page, uh, of the ascent of Mount Carmel, see, which is the ascent towards God. See. And... Um, and he says, in the ascent towards God, nada, 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 nothing, 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 nothing. That is, nothing to hold you back, nothing to, you know, just let go of everything but God. And then he says, and then when you finally get to the top and reach the top, nada, nothing. So um, uh, then he's going to, but what he types out there, what he, what's written there, is what he now gives in this chapter, which is the conclusion of this chapter. And it's in three parts. <clears throat> First part. To reach satisfaction, <clears throat> the verses are as follows. To reach satisfaction in all, 
Desire is possession in nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To arrive at being all, desire to be nothing. To come to the knowledge of all, desire the knowledge of nothing. I'd like to walk through that and put in the phrase. To reach satisfaction in the all that is God. Desire is possession in no thing because everything is finite and infinitely less than God. In other words, it's not that there aren't things, aren't the pleasures of things, but to try to possess satisfaction through the possession of anything. To come to possess all, to come to possess the all of God, God's infinity. Desire the possession of no thing. I think I mentioned it to, in the talk I was on this. I think this was, he says, uh, I once knew a man, he was speaking to one of the friars in the monastery. You know, on Easter Sunday, uh, on Palm Sunday, the Catholic Church blesses the palms for Palm Sunday. And so there's a, a kind of a devotional thing where you keep some of the blessed palms from Palm Sunday. I remember my devout uh, French uh, grand, Catholic grandmother, when there's a violent thunderstorm, she would always burn some blessed palm and a candle to protect Aww. the house from being struck by lightning, which was nice. I like that. She also kept a rosary <laughs> over her back doorknob to keep the demons out because the demons would come there and see Aww. the rosary and uh, turn around. <laughs> so like that. So as soon as, you know, possessiveness of heart, this is what he's really talking about, not to have closure in the finite. Uh, to arrive at being all, in order to arrive at being the all of God, that's what he's really, that's our destiny. To be all, to be as much God as God is God in our nothingness without God. He, that's, that's divine union. And that's heaven. But in mystical marriage, how on this earth can we experience that? See, how is it? He's leading us along a path of being married to God in which we, be, we can become all that God is in our nothingness without God. It's divinization through love. And so this is the path that leads to that fulfillment. To arrive at being all desire to be nothing. And I think being nothing means desire no title, no status in your own eyes or the eyes of others to stand on, you know, uh, no credentials to prove <laughs> if having the final say in who you are, anything. Uh, part, the next part of the last section. To arrive at the pleasure you have not, you must go by a way in which you enjoy not. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to the possession you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. Beginning, to come to the pleasure you have not, you must go by a way you enjoy not. So the pleasure you don't have is the infinite pleasure of beatitude in God. And since you're lacking that infinite beatitude, that infinite pleasure, you must go by a way in which you enjoy not. You must, in other words, you must go by a way of not trying to find anything less than the infinite presence of God that will be enough for you. So it's very strange. You are pleasure. There is pleasure. 
But you, the pleasures wash over you. You're grateful for all of them. But you're keenly aware they're intimations of an infinitely greater pleasure that alone is enough for you. And that all these, each of these little couplets has that same uh, very, very subtle uh, point. To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. And what we don't, what we don't know is God's infinite knowledge. We don't have God's own infinite knowledge of God and ourselves and others and all things. We don't have that. And, and therefore, to find our way into knowing all that God knows God to be and all that we are, we must go by a way in which we know not. That is, we don't lay claim to any conclusion in conceptual thought. We remain... We, we see it as an insight. This is going to be, this is going to be huge in Meister Eckhart on a virgin mind, in, in the cloud of unknowing, to uh, cloud of unknowing, cloud of forgetting. It's not having closure in conceptualizations of God or ourself. And so, like, pardon me, I don't speak English. Back in the good old days when I was holy, it was so clear. See? But for quite some time now, I've become perplexed. Everything's boundaryless and vast in all directions. I appreciate the relative clarity of conceptual, because we're using it now, we're talking in conceptual thoughts now. But this is conceptual thought in the service of the realization of the transconceptual. See, it's like everything Jesus says, it's like that too. It is conceptual, you can grasp it, as in you can land in the beauty of it. But it's words in the service of that which transcends words. Yes. See? And he's always inviting us to be habituated to that. I like the way you said to not have closure. So it's not to reject insights and understandings that you have, but to not uh, not have closure around them because God is mystery exactly. to us. And so to be open um, to to having our minds changed, to deepening the experience. Yes. To, to not clinging to a memory of something, to be open to the new. Exactly. For, uh, for example, beautiful. I mean, look at John of the Cross. Look how orderly his mind is. You know, any, 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 uh, we're only on page 105, and he, he's going to do this for 679 pages. <laughs> so this is a guy who thinks a lot, you know, and he knows what he thinks. He knows what he's about. But if you were yeah. to walk in to see him for spiritual direction with underlying passages, and, uh, you know, explain that to me, explain that to me, explain that to me. I think he'd suggest a different approach to everything that he's saying. See, Why don't you prayerfully sit with it and share with me something that comes to you in silence? And let's meet there together. Because everything he says has that evocative, invitational call to the deeper place like that. Yeah. <clears throat> And um, last section of the last section. <clears throat> when you turn towards something, you cease to cast yourself upon the all. For to go from all to the all, you must deny yourself of all in all. Sorry, this, this, this one more section of this. Let's, let's just take this one next, okay? When you turn towards something, that is, you turn towards something to focus on or have it or get it, like this. When you focus, when you turn towards something, you cease to cast yourself upon the all. It's infinitely more than that. 
and is itself the very reality of that, and it's nothingness without God. See? So it's just another way of putting closure to keeping the aperture of our mind and heart open to everything in a boundaryless clarity of God so we can see that God's the reality of everything. See? And it's nothingness without God. I think that's the paradox of the whole thing. For when you cease to cast yourself upon the all, that is, you throw yourself upon the mercy of the infinite depths you're powerless to attain. Okay? So that in casting yourself in its mercy on you, as finite, to attain the infinite, the infinite gives itself to you completely in the finite poverty of your heart. Okay? That's the great paradox like that, the, the granting of it all. For to go from the, from the all, to go from the all of some totality of all things to the all that is the totality of God, you must deny yourself of all pleasures and attainments in all things. So you, you end up being um, empty, it's all empty, it's all impoverished compared to the infinity. But then seeing how impoverished it is and giving yourself to the infinite. In, through these attitudes, the infinite then shines out through everything, and it's nothingness without God, including yourself and everything around you. And when you come to the possession of the all, that is the all that is God, you must possess it without wanting anything. So when you finally get there, mystical union or bust, I did it. <laughs> you have to reach it. No, you, you dare turn towards it to have it. You fall out of it. You have to you have to let you have to let God reveal to you that God is the reality of all that you are. See? And you're in the flow of that generosity of God. And you're grateful for it, you ride the waves of it, you're blessed by it. And but every time, because you're just a human being, you turn to have a little bit of it. In the very turning to have it, you fall. This this is also true in our love for each other as human beings. There can be a great love, and in little ways, people in a loving relationship can try to turn to habit on their terms. See, and it's a perpetual helping each other to let go of having, see? in order to let love carry them to even deeper places, like that. And I think it's like that. So the conclusion then, because the grand finale, because. Ergo, therefore, <laughs> because if you desire to have something in all, in other words, if you if you still desire to have something in the all that is God, see, so when you pass through death and you say to God, you know, as I cross over, can I take my iPhone with me? God goes, no, <laughs> you can't, <laughs> actually. <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, <laughs> you can't, you can't take anything. It's, the gate is so narrow, nothing less than God can fit through it. See, it's paradoxical like that, I think. Because if you desire to have something in all, your treasure in God is not purely your all. In this nakedness of the spirit, in this nakedness, the spirit finds its quietude and rest, for in coveting nothing, nothing raises it up and nothing weighs it down, because it is in the center of its humility. When it covets something, by this very desire, it is wearied. See? Insofar as I'm given over to this unexplainable blessedness, see? 
no matter what I attain in my own eyes or in the eyes of others or possessions, it doesn't raise me up. Because I know the infinity, the infinite love of God is infinitely giving itself away to me as my body, my breath, my life. And likewise, when I lose something, nothing pulls me down. Because no matter what I lose, it's infinitely less than the one thing alone, which is this infinite love that sustains me in the midst of the rising and falling of gaining and losing and gaining and losing, which is the story of our life on this earth, really, like this. And then we're in the center of our humility. That's a great phrase, like the zero variance. That in God and with God, I'm everything, absolutely everything from all that God is by the generosity of God. And without God, I'm nothing, absolutely nothing. And uh, so I'm in the center of humility. As soon as I catch myself, and I do, uh, because that's my teacher, it's my frailty, I catch myself coveting something. Mainly, I catch myself thinking, as long as I can reach this or keep this, I'll be okay. Or if I don't find this or lose this, it's over for me. As soon as I fall prey to that absolutizing of the relative and relativizing the absolute, and so I have to recalibrate my heart and return back again to this love path to ask God to help me stabilize in it. So that's the chapter. It's quite a chapter. Yeah. Jim, can you repeat that last little teaching you offered that was so helpful about the, um, if I'm thinking of finding... Yes, yes. And I say because we all do it. So we're catching ourselves in the act of doing it to ask God to help us to learn. So like this, with the thorn in the flesh, God leaves it there as our teacher. I catch myself imagining that as long as I can find my way to something, or if having found it, I can hold on to it and not lose it, I'll be okay. And that could even be God. Yeah, it could right, be God, on, God on my terms. Yeah. And that's God what the dark night, we see in the dark night of faith, is that God takes God away. See, that we're attached to God, meaning insofar as God's like an extension of ourself. See, so God then impoverishes us, which is the night of faith. See, likewise, uh, see, I, I think then as long as I can get past something that's burdening me, as long as it's going to turn out okay the way I want it, the long, I, th- I think I'll be okay. That if it doesn't, I'm finished. See? And I catch myself on those two, see? but I realize that the love of God transcends, utterly permeates, and is itself the reality of the rise and fall of all that comes and goes. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to ride the waves of circumstance to see the divinity that sustains me in a breath by breath by breath. And so St. John of the Cross then is a, a turning to St. John of the Cross for guidance. See, he's guiding us in how to cultivate this habit. And we can see, too, we can't do this, obviously. That's the passive part. We foster a willingness to cooperate, but then we turn to God to help us do this, because without God, it's impossible. Like Jesus said, you know, with God, all things are possible. With us, it's impossible. So that's the chapter, and I thought that's why we should dialogue about it, because you can see it's so, each couplet, each thing is so, something to sit with. Yes. And then through the rest of the book, to see he's talking about this. Through the whole book, he's talking about 
this explicates it with more examples and helpful hints and so on. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each teaching has paradox built into it, which is so hard for our yes, minds to, to to sit with. But that's the teaching, yeah. isn't it? To awaken us to paradox and awaken us to, it to is. mystery and and not it knowing is. and see because a paradox is an apparent contradiction. It's a paradox, and so in the paradox. Sequen the sequential mind comes to an impasse. Jesus teaches like this a lot. The first shall be last, the last shall be first, more shall be given more. And so we sit in the impasse, and then in the impasse, God teaches us. You know what I mean? The heart is instructed by God in the impasse of the paradox, of the, the divinity of the unfigurable, yeah. which is ourself. <laughs> Notice we can't figure ourselves out. <laughs> we'll never figure ourselves out. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping us make what sense we can yeah, yeah. out of out of this chapter. It I, I, that was incredibly helpful because reading it myself in preparation, you know, the, that phrase it makes no sense. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. <laughs> so this has been incredibly yeah. helpful to me. I'm sure to everyone well, listening. I'm glad we did this together like this. I think it was uh, it'll help them. I think. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.